You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 4 as we continue our study through this precious, wonderful book. As the song we just sang tells us, oh, for grace to trust him more. It is so sweet indeed to trust in the Lord. And we know that all of his promises are sure, and he keeps every word. The struggle is not on the Lord's part. The struggle is on our part to believe him. One of the things that Paul wants us to know as we look at this particular text today is that however we might struggle with our faith, the promise is certain. And salvation is guaranteed because the Heavenly Father is the one who holds it in his hand. I just uh, want to read two verses to you this morning, and then we will pray. We'll ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text in front of us, and then we'll, we'll dig in and we'll, we'll get busy. But I want to just remind you, I want to draw your attention to two verses. The first verse, verse 13, that we're going to be looking at, as well as the last verse that we're going to be looking at today, which is verse 17. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 4, 13. I'm just going to read that first verse, verse 13, and then we'll look at verse 17. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says that the promise to Abraham and, off, and his offspring that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And if you want to just jump down to verse 17, and verse 17, which in my Bible is the tail end of the page, it says, as it is written... He's going back, and he's quoting from Genesis now. I have made you the father of many nations, Abraham, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your word. You speak to us through the holy scriptures. You provide your spirit to help our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. You illuminate the passage before us today. Father, we come to you, and as always, we ask for grace. Every day of our lives, Lord, we know is to be lived based upon a humble dependence in you for your gift. And you give us all things and you give us those things which are necessary for our salvation. So we pray this morning, Lord, that as we continue trusting in the blood of your Son, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that we would also trust in your Word, and we would trust in your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it and to strengthen our faith in it. Do that this morning, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We all struggle with regrets. In fact, some of us struggle with regret that is so deep that the word regret doesn't quite cover it. It's a woefully inadequate term to describe the real shame and the real horror that some of us feel when we look back at our lives. Laura Waters Hinson, in her documentary, As We Forgive, tells the story of a man only identified as Saveri, he is a Rwandan who himself had killed seven people during the Rwandan genocide of 1994, in which over 800,000, approximately over 800,000 people were murdered. The Hutus had targeted an oppressed minority, the Tutsis, for elimination because they regarded them falsely as, as violent enemies, and they perpetrated this myth that the Hutus needed to be eradicated from the wider population. Saveri believed this myth. He was deceived into thinking that it was true that the Tutsis really did present this enormous threat to him and his family and his society, and so he joined up with the militia, 
And one day, Severi was ordered to go into a village and to exterminate some of these rebels. He went in and he found that the rebels who were allegedly violent extremists who had to be put down and killed no matter what, turned out to be nothing more than a mother and her six young children. Believing that if he did not follow the order he was given, that he himself would be killed, he murdered this mother and her six children, one of whom was still just an infant. Years later in prison, as Laura Hinson is doing this documentary, she's interviewing him, and he makes this statement from a prison cell. He says, quote, After killing these people, my heart was shattered. From that point on, I had no peace in my heart. I could not understand how dark my my heart had become killing God's creatures when I also was a creature of God. Personally, despite what others may say, I never believed that I deserved God's mercy. I thought that I should die, but I also knew that death itself would not be enough payment for all the wrong that I had done. Severi, in his testimony in this documentary, is correct. Death itself, your death, is not enough to make up for all the harm, all the pain and the heartache that has been caused. Now, this might seem strange to you, what I'm about to say, but the truth that your death is not enough to make it right is good news. It is intended by the Lord to be a point of conviction that forces us to look away from ourselves. We all have these regrets. It's true that perhaps none of us in here this morning have murdered anyone. Nevertheless, we've all done wrong. We've all wrecked someone else. We've all engaged in some sort of a sin. We've betrayed someone. We've violated a confidence. We told a secret. We betrayed a trust. We backstabbed in some degree. All of us here have violated another and caused a harm which when we're being really honest with ourselves, we know in our own power, it is beyond our ability to repair. We all struggle with that. It goes beyond this text this morning. What Paul wants us to understand is that God's salvation goes beyond just the forgiveness of our sins. It's something sweeter. It's something greater. God's mercy is so great. His grace is so wonderful, in ransoming us, God moves beyond the forgiveness of our sins, which is crucial, to something even sweeter. It's something sweeter than any other penance that we could perform. It's something sweeter than any other absolution that we might seek after. It's something sweeter than even the return to the status quo. What God gives us and what Paul hints at in this text this morning is that he calls us into a newness of life in which we are healed and those whom we have harmed are healed as well. I want you to look at the text with me this morning, beginning in verse 13. Paul says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. Now, we've been working our way through this book, and we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 that we're all guilty. We've all violated the law. We all stand under God's wrath. We've worked our way through chapter 3 here, and we've begun to understand that the Judaistic system of 
righteousness with God is based on a false premise that there is actually something we can do to make ourselves right with God, that there is some work that we can perform. And of course, for the Jews and for the Pharisaic system, that work is keeping the Mosaic law. Paul has abolished all of this, and he continues to hammer that argument here in chapter 4. He makes the statement, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law. That is to say, it didn't come through anything that we do or could do. It came through the righteousness of faith. But I want to draw your attention to this word promise. It's going to be repeated throughout our text this morning. When we use that word promise, we need to first stop and get it firmly fixed in our minds what it is that we mean by this word promise. Now, you and I, we habitually build our lives around promises, from big, big promises to our spouse, such as until death do we part, to little promises like, I'll be home around seven. We all make promises. Not only do people make them, but other people count on them, and they build their lives upon them, from mortgages to wedding vows, from Netflix to NATO, We all make promises in really small ways and in really large ways. Dr. Martin Luther King, the famous civil rights advocate of the 1960s in America, pricked America's conscience when he said, now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. During World War II, the legendary General MacArthur, having been driven by the Japanese away from his troops, having to leave thousands upon thousands of troops behind in the Philippines as he was departing, made a promise, I shall return. In Hannah Arendt's insightful prose, she defines a promise this way. She says, promises are the uniquely human way of ordering the future, making it predictable and reliable to the extent that this is humanly possible. Now, I may say to my wife, I will be home tonight by seven, I promise. And what I mean by that is I have every intention and every determination to make it home by seven, but at the end of the day, I am human. I live in this world just as you do, And I am subject and at the whim, sometimes, of God's divine intervention and providence. We don't really know what the day holds for us. I could die in a car wreck on my way home this evening, in which case I wouldn't keep my promise. But what Paul is talking about here is that God, who is not affected by any of those things, who stands outside of time and history and is sovereign over all of it, he makes a promise to Abraham, which is to say that he is giving a word to Abraham and by extension to all of Abraham's offspring by which God's intention is to make the future predictable to make the future and the outcome of human history certain that it will attain to a certain goal and a certain purpose that God has for it. Now, he's not going to get caught late at the office. He's not going to get in a car accident when he's on his way home. God is sovereign, and he will accomplish his purposes. When he makes a promise, as we're going to see when we look at the text The words and the verbs in particular that are used to describe this promise speak of it as such such an incredible certainty that from God's perspective, it has already happened. And we're going to see that as we work our way through this verse after verse after verse. God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring that they would be the heirs of the world. This promise, as we've been looking at all the way through, was not contingent upon Abraham keeping the law. And that's what he says here. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. In the next two verses, Paul is going to explain exactly why it can never be based upon law. And the short and the sweet of it is this, church. Law and the doing of the law is the polar opposite of hoping and believing and having faith in Jesus. It is the polar opposite 
just as light is not at all anything like darkness, they are polar opposites. And as God makes a promise to you and to me, it is so sure, it is so certain, it is so powerful, it is so invincible, it is as but a little flickering candle in a dark room. The light does not, sorry, the darkness does not overcome it. Paul makes the statement in the very next verse. He says, for if the adherents of the law are to be the heirs of faith, the heirs of Abraham, faith is null and the promise is void. That's what the very next verse says. The promise doesn't mean anything. Faith doesn't mean anything. If it is that we keep this, that we receive this inheritance by what we do. And the Greek is actually quite, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of clunky when we read the Greek wording literally, and we try to bring it into English, but Paul phrases it in this rather clunky way for two reasons. One, I would just say that Paul is clunky in most everything that he writes, but in particular, he's trying to emphasize this. So this isn't the smoothest Greek writing we see in the New Testament, but it is written in such a way as to emphasize two things. He says, null is faith. He puts null in the beginning. He doesn't say faith is null. He says null, null, totally useless, completely empty is faith. And he does the same thing with promise. He doesn't say, and the promise is void. He says, void, empty, nothing is the promise. The Greek words for void and, uh, and null here in our text are used in the perfect tense. Oh, no. Some of you, are, you can see the eyes starting to glaze over. Pastor Josh is getting into his Greek grammar. He's a Greek nerd. He gets into the, the meaning of verbs and word tenses and all of this. And oh, man, here it comes. Yes, indeed. It does come. Rejoice. Because when I explain to you what this means, it cannot be reversed. It is certain. The perfect tense is a particular verb tense in the Greek language that speaks of an action performed in past time with results that endure always into the present that can never be reversed. Paul's statement here is, if we are made righteous by the law, then faith forever is pointless. If we are made right by the law, then the promise, God's grace, forever is empty. If we are made right by the law, in effect, God has always and will always be for all eternity a liar, not to be trusted. If you're a Jew, or if you adhere to any other system of self-righteousness in which you think you can make yourself right with a holy, infinitely pure God, then everything he has ever said cannot be trusted because time and again, from the beginning, he has made it clear we cannot make ourselves right. He alone must save. Paul says, faith is null and the promise is forever empty if it is those who do the law who are to be the heirs of the world. C.F. Mull, who is a translator, does something very English in translating these two words, null and promise. He wants to put some of that strength of the Greek back into the English language, so he translates it. If those who belong to the law inherit Abraham's promise, faith is ipso facto void, and the promise is ipso facto annulled. I don't really care for C.F. Mole because he's uh, writing around the turn of the century and he keeps bringing in a lot of that King James English. I appreciate uh, Judy reading to us this morning from the King James translation, but it can be a little bit difficult for us to understand it in our modern English. I generally tend to prefer reading J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips, and that's not to say that the King James, King James Version is a bad translation at all. By all means, if that's what you know, rock that, rock that Bible. But listen to J.B. Phillips. He translates it this way, for if, after all, they who pin their faith to keeping the law were to inherit God's world, it would make nonsense of faith in God himself. It would destroy the whole point of promise. If I say to my wife, I'm going to be home at seven o'clock tonight, but what I really mean by that is, 
you better come get me and drag me home. I'm going to actually be doing everything else under the sun and not coming home. Well, then what in the world am I promising? And what is the beauty of that promise in the first place? It's a promise essentially not to promise. And that's what Paul is saying. If we have to earn our salvation, then God was never the one to save us. And all these promises to save us are wrong and empty and void. And the text goes on. In verse 15, Paul makes this statement, and he's talking about the life of Abraham. He says, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And he's picking up on a theme that he had emphasized previous in chapter 4, in which Abraham was told that he was righteous, he was counted as righteous based on his belief in the promise, and this happened some 14 years before the giving of circumcision as the symbol, the sign of the old covenant, the Mosaic law. So he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before he ever was given a law to obey. That's what Paul's point has been. And he makes this statement here in verse 15, which reflects that previous idea. It says, if the law, sorry, it says the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Anybody here ever been given a speeding ticket before? It's time of confession. There's one hand. There's another hand. A lot of liars in this room. A lot of liars. Okay? Now, most of us have sped. Let me, let me put it this way. How many of you know you deserve a speeding ticket, but you never got the one you deserved? Now, let me see those hands. A lot more hands. Okay, good. Good. We're being honest this morning. Did you know that in the history of Canada, Ontario was the first province to legislate speed limits? It wasn't national for a long time. It started in Ontario. The first provincial legislation governing automobile use came into effect in 1903. You want to know when the Americans legislated speed limits? It wasn't until late 20s. We were quick to clamp down. And do you want to know what the limit was? It was not 100 kilometers an hour. Vehicles in 1903 didn't quite get to 100 kilometers an hour. But they could go fast, and dangerously so, so, given the engineering of a 1903 Model T or whatever it was. The very first speed limit came into effect in Ontario in 1903, and it was limited to, at that time, 15 miles per hour, which was the imperial system of measurement. For those of us born after 1980, that would be about 24 kilometers an hour. The first Provincial Highway Traffic Act passed this is the federal law, passed in 1923, it changed the speed limit for highways in Canada up to 25 miles per hour, which again, for the younger, younger ones among us, is about 40 kilometers an hour. Now, I don't have time for questions. <laughs> Can you imagine what great fun it would be to drive Mike Black's McLaren in 1924? before they implemented a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit? You see, you could go 200 miles an hour in this vehicle. I don't know that the roads back then would have been constructed in such a way to sustain that kind of speed, but hypothetically, you could take a monster sports car from today, and if you had that monster sports car back in 1903 or 1924, depending on where you were at in the country, you could go 200 miles per hour or however many kilometers an hour that is. And though it would be dangerous and certainly reckless, and although you almost certainly would murder some poor horse and buggy coming down the road ahead of you, you would not be charged with a crime. Because it was not illegal to go that speed at that time. You can't break a speed limit where there is no speed limit. You cannot break a law where there is no law to be broken. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to in this text is that there was a moral standard of righteousness which humanity had utterly and totally failed to keep. God, in giving the law to Moses, makes definitive 
and articulates clearly where the transgression lies so that man may be convicted of his wickedness and his unrighteousness. But in promising Abraham a future and an inheritance, God did this with no mention of any law, which is to say that Abraham, from the moment he began to receive this promise from the Lord, did so with no knowledge of any law, and if he was violating it and breaking it left, right, and center, which we know he was, he did so unconscious of it, which is to say that Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, understood from the very first moment that his redemption, his salvation had nothing to do with any law that he might have transgressed because he knew of no law. It had everything to do with God fulfilling his promise. Abraham could do nothing to fulfill his promise, to make the reality come real, to make this future happen. A number of years ago when I was in high school, a couple of buddies and I did what high school teenage boys do who have a big 4x4 pickup truck after a fresh rainfall. And we decided to find a patch of grass somewhere out in a pasture in a prairie that was particularly muddy and sopping wet. We found a bog, in fact, that uh, was a few feet deep with liquid mud and we thought it would be great fun to just put that truck into 4x4 four four and hit the hammer and just spin and do donuts and, and just slosh all through that mud. And after doing that for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and having a laugh, we said, you know what? Let's see how slow we can go without getting stuck. Because I remind you, I was a teenage high school boy. So don't don't sit there and say, Pastor Josh is an idiot. I was an idiot. <laughs> but God in his grace has educated me. We got stuck, horribly stuck. And uh, we didn't have cell phones in those days. What we had was that poor farmer's house, which is about four miles down the road. And so, as we sat there in the truck debating what to do, we knew there was no way we could get home. There was no way we could free ourselves from the mud. There was no way to attain to salvation unless we called for help. And that meant walking four miles to a farm down the, farmhouse down the road, telling this farmer that we had stuck our vehicle in his pasture, and we needed him to call AAA tow truck to come pull us out. And so one of us, there were three of us in the vehicle, one of us was designated to go and make that phone call while the other two of us sat there in the truck. We didn't really know what the cost would be of the tow truck. Uh, we're not sure what the insurance was, whether we had AAA or anything like this. We weren't entirely clear on it. We did know that being high school teenagers, we had about 50 cents that we could rub together and that somehow we'd have to pay this tow truck driver with next to no money. Uh, maybe on good faith that he'd take us home to our parents and our parents would bail us out, which was even more of an alarming prospect. But as my friend had wandered off, and he'd been gone for about 20 or 30 minutes, I jumped back out of the truck. Mind you, we'd been in and out of this truck multiple times to see if there was some way we could dig it out. I jumped out of the truck, and I began with my baseball hat, my beloved Dallas Cowboys baseball hat, to continue to try to pull mud away from the front wheels and the back wheels to try to get some traction and I'd shovel for 10 minutes, get frustrated, get back in the truck. We'd bemoan our circumstances, and a few minutes would go by, and I'd get back out, and I'd keep shoveling. It would be useless. I'd say, hit it again, and his wheels would spin. I'd get back in the truck. And after a while, my friend turned to me, and he said, listen, you're getting mud all over the place in here. We're either waiting for the tow truck or we're not. Which is it? And he didn't know it at the time. But that question is probably the best illustration of the gospel that I had ever heard. What Paul is driving at here in this text is we are either saved by God or we're not. Look at what he says here. Verse 15. 
He makes the statement, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Another way you might understand that verse is, if we are saved by digging ourselves out, out of the mud with our own beloved baseball cap, then the offer of salvation in the form of a tow truck is useless. We're either hoping on God to come and rescue us, or we are trying to dig ourselves out. And what the scriptures emphasize over and over and over again is there is no digging yourself out. None whatsoever. Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 16. If you look at the very next verse, it says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of God's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Quite a pit. Quite a bit to unpack in that particular verse. This passage, though, ultimately teaches us two things, that there are two methods of attaining to righteousness. There's only really one. But that of these two supposed methods of attaining to righteousness, one being works and the other being faith, if you are going to establish your righteousness by your own efforts, then you are not going to commit yourself fully to the grace of God. And the second thing that it says, on the other hand, If you are to be saved by God, you must commit yourself fully to God. That is why, you'll notice in verse 16, it depends on faith. Paul's statement is, this is why God's salvation rests on faith. He makes a purpose statement here. It says, in order that the promise may rest on grace, meaning that God is the one who's going to fulfill his promise And when it rests on grace, when the responsibility for our salvation is entirely up to God, what that affords us is a guarantee. Paul, Paul makes this statement in verse 16. It says, the promise rests on grace, and as a result of that, it is to be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to the ones who do the law, but to the ones who have faith, like Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, by saving us through faith... God guarantees our salvation. This is the reason we read in the 16th verse that the inheritance depends on faith, that it may rest on grace, that it may be guaranteed to all of us. It goes then without saying that every man in his right mind wants to be saved. It's only a crazy person who would not want to be saved. But Satan, who is the enemy of our soul, has brought in and devised all manner of systems and methods of supposed righteousness, which if we would simply but do this work or perform that action, somehow, some way, we could make ourselves right with God. All across the world, from the Philippines to South America to Russia, all across the world, Europe, here in North America, even here in Canada, there are people who will do all kinds of crazy things in order to justify themselves. We read of people who, conflicted with guilt, will tie up one of their limbs until their muscles atrophy and they lose the use of that limb. We read and hear of other people whose religion teaches them to stare at the sun in full noon brightness until they go blind as a means of penance. Perhaps one of the most astonishing things I read is in the nation of India, Hindus periodically engage in a festival. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Hindus periodically engage in a festival called the Ard Kumbh Mela. You may have heard about it. It takes place at the confluence of the two great rivers, the Ganges and the Yamuna. And it's uh, the fabled waters in their scriptures called the fabled waters of Prayag. This particular festival is led by the holy men of the Hindu religion who are called Digambar Sajus. These holy men lead it. It starts with a procession from the nearby village down to where these two rivers meet. And that procession must be, you you must walk this parade stark naked. That is the start of it. And there are millions upon millions of Hindus who engage in this every year. It's the world's largest religious event Millions of people dipping in the fabled waters of Prayag, disregarding for a moment just the incredible expense of traveling there and the difficult journey and the massive amounts of people that are all crowding to get into the river at this exact point. 
They come from everywhere, both rich and poor. The Bhagavad Gita says, and I quote, those who battle at the conflux of the black and the white river, the Ganga and the Yamuna, go to heaven. So the idea, according to the text, the scriptures of the Hindus, is that there's supposed to be a million people there. And a part of it is getting into the water despite all those naked bodies wrestling to get into that water at the same time. That's just a part of it. The text goes on. It says, The pilgrim who bathes at this place wins absolution for his whole family. And even if he has perpetrated a hundred crimes, he is redeemed the moment that he touches the Ganga, whose waters wash away his sins. That is a translation of this text. Now, here's the thing, though. Does it? As Christians, we know that it does not. But what is interesting is even among the Hindus who subscribe to this holy book, there is doubt. There are continuous questions. Is it really enough? given all the wrongs that I've done, given all the sins that I've committed. We reflect on this poor Sarai from the beginning of the message this morning who murdered a young family. Would his conscience be assuaged, fighting naked with a million other Hindus to get into the river at this point? It would not, because we know that there's no truth in it. And this is exactly where Satan sells us a bill of goods. He comes to us in his deception, in his nefarious evil plotting, and he says, if you would do this, you can be made right. If you would fulfill this ritual, if you would go through this religious rite, you can be declared innocent. He promises it. We go to the task. We work our bones bloody trying to fulfill the expectation. And at the end, because we are creatures made in God's image, we know it's a lie because we can never escape our conscience and we can never fully suppress the truth. And that's when Satan laughs and he comes and he says in that moment, yeah, I know I promised you this and I knew it was a lie, but if you would just do this little bit more, then, oh, then you will know peace. And it's still a lie. In recent years, this particular religious festival has witnessed an incredible phenomenon that has alarmed the Indian government, which has required them to place restrictions upon it. The priests of Hinduism have begun to tell those worshipers who are not fully satisfied that they are righteous, having dipped in this river, that if they would be fully righteous, what they should do is starve themselves down by means of fasting to the point where, over the course of two weeks, they are able to survive on a single grain of rice per day. And then they must fight the masses to get into the water and then they must drown themselves in that water. A fate which is accomplished by means of the fact that they have no energy because they have fasted themselves so far to the point of starvation. And a fate that is also facilitated by the millions upon millions of other people trying to get into that water. You can go to heaven if you would but destroy your life. This isn't just true for the Hindus. This isn't just true for so many other religions of the world. It's true for you and me in a false form of Christianity. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees was, in vain do these people worship me. He's quoting Isaiah. In vain do these people worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, their hearts are far from me. If there were something we could do, if, if there were something I could tell you that you could do, you would do it in order to be made right with God, in order to assuage your conscience, in order to know some form of forgiveness and absolution for your past sins. But you know what? You would never really know that it was going to be satisfactory because the victim of your past sins 
would still be suffering the harm. Whereas you might try to free yourself from guilt, the reality remains. And when we engage in this form of pharisaical legalism, the the truth is, is that it ends nowhere. Well, you need to go to church every Sunday. Okay, I'll go to church every Sunday, 52 Sundays out of the year in order to be righteous with God. You do that for several years, and then you realize it doesn't feel like enough because it would never be enough. I'll go every Sunday. I'll go every Wednesday. You do that 52 weeks out of the year. A couple of years goes by, and it's not enough. I'll give all my money away. I'll give every, and it just goes on and on and on. You can completely come to the end of yourself and realize at the end of the day, I'm not sure that I'm really forgiven, but even if I am, all this stuff that I have done, all that I have sacrificed, all that I have poured out, it still does not heal the harm. And that's the promise that Paul wants us to focus on. Abraham is dying. He's an old man. He's coming to the end of his life, and the reason he is dying is because he is under the curse. He is under the curse because he was born with a sin nature and is himself a sinner. He has wronged God. He stands under the curse. He will die. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I make you a promise. You will inherit the world. What an incredible statement. Look back at verse 13. Look what he says. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. This is why you should love Greek grammar and be a Greek nerd like me. Little things jump out at you that deserve our close scrutiny. For those of us that have read the account of Abraham, we read it this way. Abraham was called to leave his homeland and to go to a land that God promised him. He went to that land And then God told him that he would be the father of so many children, they would number more than the sand on the beach and more than the stars in the sky. And we oftentimes, when we just skirt over this story, we oftentimes come to this idea that it's really Abraham's offspring that are going to receive the land. But is that what God said? Is that actually what the Lord said? I want you to just stick your thumb here for a second, and I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 17. And if we just go through this promise in a cursory manner, we'll undoubtedly miss it. It is true that God promised that Abraham would have so many descendants, so many children, so much offspring, that they would number as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. But notice this, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. All well and good. We've seen that before. But look at verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, and to your offspring after you. God's promise is this. I will be your God forever. Verse 8, and I will give to you, notice this, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. How old is Abraham? He's 99. He's going to die here in another couple of years after he has a child, and he tries to sacrifice that child at God's command. But if you follow it, God says, I'm going to make you have so many sons and daughters, they're going to be more numerous than all the sand on the beach. And you will inherit this land. You will receive it. 
together with them. Did you see that? Abraham was being told that this land that he had wandered through like a pilgrim for so many years, he would own it. When fathers die, they write out a will and they leave an inheritance from their estate to their children. Abraham was being told that one, he would be the father of nations, and two, he would inherit the world. Look at what Paul says. Go back to, Philipp- go back to Romans 4. Look at what Paul says again in verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Who inherits the world in Romans 4, verse 13? Paul's understanding, and we see this from the text in Genesis 17, is that Abraham inherits the world. Abraham inherits the world together with all of his offspring, which, as Paul has been arguing throughout Romans, are still being born by faith in Christ. So if all of the offspring haven't been born yet, then this promise remains future. Which is to say that before Abraham ever went up on that mountain with Isaac, before Abraham ever had to struggle with the decision to sacrifice his own son at God's command, he first had to wrestle with whether or not to believe that somehow, someway, his body, which was as good as dead and 99 years old, would one day inherit the whole world together with nations that came from him. To me, it's no trouble looking at the text to say, Abraham believed in resurrection for Isaac, because Abraham had already believed in resurrection for himself. That seems to be the indisputable fact of what God is promising here. How would that work? How could that happen? God gives no details. What will it look like when Abraham receives and inherits the whole world? As far as Abraham is concerned, there in Genesis chapter 17, again, God gives no details. The reason why people will never be satisfied with their own works-based righteousness is because despite all that they may do, it is never enough, number one. Number two, It can never heal the nations. It can never bring about the harm being repaired that they have caused. And it's obvious, it should go without stating, but I'm going to state it for you anyway. For one moment, let's just say that they were somehow able to repair the harm and somehow make amends today. How would they ever have any certainty that they would hold on to that salvation tomorrow? What Paul has just done here in these four verses, he has just said, your faith is certain because it rests on God. Sorry, your salvation is certain because it rests on God. And perhaps most beautifully of all, it is only faith in Jesus And it is only what Jesus can do that can offer us any hope for the healing of all the harm that we have caused. This this fellow from Rwanda who murdered this mother and these six children, Saveri, Laura Laura Waters Hinson in her documentary, As We Forgive, details once again as he was in jail, believing that his death would not be enough to atone for all the wrongs that he had done. A Christian pastor by the name of Gehigi came to him. He was himself a Tutsi. He had had cousins and family members murdered in the Rwandan genocide. But he came to Severi in jail, and he began to share the gospel with him, and he read to him a passage From Revelation chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city. On either side of the river, the tree of life stood with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. When we sin, it's like we've dropped a rock into a pond. And the ramifications for our sin are like those ripples that spread out from where that rock splashed. They just spread out further and further and further and further and further. And our sin, in the same way, just spreads out and impacts more and more and more people like a ripple effect. All efforts on your part to try to reverse that ripple are like you jumping into a pond to stop the ripples from rippling. You just create more ripples, friend. But do you know who can calm those waters? Jesus Christ. If it depends on you, you'll never have forgiveness. But if it depends on the sweetness of Jesus and his grace, there's a promise here that defies comprehension. Somehow, some way, everything that we have done wrong, all the harms that we have committed, all the relationships we have broken, all the damage we have done, Jesus and Jesus alone can heal it. Why wouldn't you want to trust in the Lord? Why would you ever think you could fix it? But on top of all of this, there is no one else that is a sweeter friend and can satisfy every desire of your heart than the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you will trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the friends who have gathered here to worship you this morning with us, Lord. We thank you so much that Abraham believed in this promise, as it says from Romans chapter 4 and verse 13, in the presence of the one who calls into existence those things which do not exist. God, help us to have a faith that doesn't put you into a box and doesn't say that certain things are impossible. And Well, it's only possible if I can imagine how God might do it. Lord, you will heal this world. You will bring righteousness. You will bring justice. If we would trust in your Son, you can redeem all that we have done wrong and use it for good. These are small miracles compared to the greatest miracle of all. Father, we know you've sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, to make justice with yourself, and to make a relationship between us and you possible. Father, if there are any here today who do not know you and do not have peace for their past wrongs, if there are any here today who are struggling in their own power and according to their own ability in order to make themselves right, I pray, God, you'd use this word today to convict them that such a thing is impossible. Bring salvation, we ask, humbly, in the name of Christ, who died for the sins of us all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.